Coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. There's so much change going on in the Middle East today. Usually, certainly over the last 20 years, let's say, since the 9-11 attacks, most of the changes in the Middle East have been horrible. Wars, insurrections, revolutions, genocide. So it's been bad. The Abraham Accords. What exactly are they? And which Middle Eastern country might be next in joining the Abraham Accords? Hi, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and I'm joined today from Jerusalem by Joel Rosenberg, our founder. Joel, welcome. Glad to have you on this podcast. Great to be with you, Carl. I I love doing this podcast. I know we're coming up almost on a, a year, and I've been encouraged not only to do these conversations with you, but, um, but the fact that people anybody's listening, so that's encouraging. Oh, people are listening and people are commenting. It's been so rewarding. You know, over the last several podcasts, we've been talking about your book, Enemies and Allies, the best-selling book that uh, was released uh, earlier this fall. Uh, and uh, and we've we've covered get my some cat in the background just and, you know, for we, good, uh, and we've talked about your cat in the background <laughs> yes exactly but we we've encountered some amazing stories of your uh, delegations and your personal relationships with some of the key leaders in the Middle East and behind the scenes of these things the Abraham Accords but Joel I'm really amazed that you know one of the key features of this book is that you included a section called the future. Now, I know that you're not the prophet or a son of a prophet, but I love the idea that you actually created an entire section of this book called The Future of the Abraham Accords. Why did you create that section and what's behind it? Well, I I think that uh, there's so much change going on in the Middle East today. Usually, certainly over the last 20 years, let's say, since the 9-11 attacks, most of the changes in the Middle East have been horrible. Wars, insurrections, revolutions, genocide. So it's been bad. But we are in a season of where change is good, where we're seeing peace breaking out, not just in one country, uh, between one Arab country and Israel, but in you know four Arab countries uh, and Israel, and another Muslim majority, though not an Arab country. So that's huge. It's exciting. So... That's important, um, and we're all talking about well, what's next, Where where's this thing going? But at the same time, part of the, the premise of enemies and allies is, you know, it's not just what Joel thinks about the region. Let's go sit with the decision makers. Let's mm. go sit with the kings and the crown princes, the presidents and the prime ministers of the Arab world and of Israel, and let's ask them, what do they think? What's happening now? Why are things changing so dramatically? And what do they think the future holds? But as you write a book about, you know, kind of where we've come from, where we're going, and you get it from the mouths of Jewish leaders and Arab Muslim leaders, then the question is also, well, what do evangelical Christians think? Hmm. And we have a lot of different thoughts. We're an eclectic group, 600 million evangelicals worldwide. But uh, what does the Bible tell us about the future? The Bible is unique in the fact that it bases its own credibility Mm. on prophecy, on God describing himself as 
the beginning and the end mm. as the seer and the knower of all things, even before they happen. And that he's going to tell us certain things that are going to happen ahead of time, sometimes briefly ahead of time, sometimes centuries ahead of time, so that when it happens, we know he's real and we can trust him for everything he says. And so that I think was an important element in this book. If I was, you know, a New York Times columnist or I was a, you know, a CIA analyst or, you know, a former diplomat, then uh, no, I probably wouldn't put in a section about what does the Bible say hmm. about the future of the Middle East, even if I was a Christian, because I would think, well, maybe that's not appropriate to this type of book. But yeah. I'm none of those things. <laughs> um, I am an evangelical. I got invited to meet with all these people because I'm an evangelical. Mm -hmm. With a number of them, we discussed these things. With the president of Egypt, for example, we had a conversation with him about how oh, wow. Isaiah 19 describes the future of Egypt. Imagine mm -hmm. sitting with an, the leader of the world's largest Arab Muslim country and having a conversation. What does the Bible say mm. about the future of your country? How, you know, it was fascinating and people will read that conversation in the book because it was on the record. So yeah. I just thought it would be good to give a thumbnail sketch of some of the key prophecies. You can't, you know, it's yeah. not a book entirely about prophecy, but, uh, but I think it's important yeah. uh, both for Christians. Many Christians haven't studied prophecy at all. Mm. So that's something to be aware of. But that, you know, all the Jewish, Muslim people, atheists, agnostics that are going to read the book also, yeah. they're usually not unaware of what the Bible says about the future. So yeah. um, I, I thought it was important to include. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think a question a lot of our listeners will have is, where do you see the Abraham Accords fitting into those prophecies? And, and maybe do they? You know, is, is this something to note as far as the progress of, of fulfilled Bible prophecy? Sure. Let me just take one step back because as you opened, it was like, what are the Abraham Accords? Right, Let's just answer right. that we're question. So yes. people are like, um, what are you saving that for the end? I was. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So, uh, but I think it's important to just set the table that right. the Abraham Accords are a series of Arab Israeli agreements, diplomatic agreements, uh, economic agreements. We are describing generally as peace treaties, and they mm -hmm. are. But these particular four Arab countries have not been engaged in direct combat and military operations against Israel over the last, you know, seven decades. They have been engaged in economic boycotts of Israel, in political warfare against Israel at the United Nations, and so forth. Uh, and they've been in solidarity with countries that have been at war with Israel. But for most of these countries, the United Arab Emirates was the first, the Kingdom of Bahrain was second, the Kingdom of Morocco was third, and the government of Sudan, the Republic of Sudan, was fourth. All of these countries have had slightly different agreements, but mm -hmm. they're being generally described as the Abraham Accords. That's certainly the name that the UAE and the Bahrainis and the Israelis gave to the accord because they're mm. saying, listen, Abraham is important. He's the patriarch of three monotheistic religions, Judaism, mm. Christianity, and Islam. Mm. Okay, Now, we all have different views of Abraham's role, but it was interesting that the leaders that first created these peace agreements wanted to call them after this beloved patriarch of these three religions as a way of saying – we can work together because we have common roots. 
Yes, we have differences, of course, but we have common roots. Now, I will just add that for most people who, who are studying the issues closely, they're not really technically peace treaties. I mean, they do say we're not going to go to war with each other, but most people are using the term normalization hmm. agreements, meaning we, you know, these countries didn't have embassies in Israel. Israel didn't have embassies in those countries. They didn't do trade. You couldn't travel as uh, Israelis to go visit their yeah. countries on an Israeli passport. And so we need to normalize. We need to have a normal relationship. Yes, these countries disagree on various issues like the Palestinian question and so forth. But let's have normal relationships. And then a senior Bahraini official, uh, when I was traveling to the uh, the capital of Bahrain, Manama, and then also uh, meeting with other Bahraini officials in Washington, they like to use the term not normalization – but formalization. Hmm. Why? Because they say, you know, for the last number of years, we sort of have had this kind of normal relationship. Now, not embassies and right. trade agreements, but we've been friendly yeah. with Israel. We haven't had a problem. We've had sort of the quiet, below the radar things. But now we can finally formalize it and say, yes, we're friends. So, uh, so that's the Abraham Accords Got it. in the nutshell. Got it. And, you know, one other thing that we that we started the podcast with was and what we ended with last time. Are there countries that are still considering joining such accords? Uh, these accords are, you know, they're really shaping the way the Middle East is looking these days. So any good. Any Let's save that. On? Let's definitely save that for the end. Um, OK, and so bring me back around. Don't let me I lose will. track of that, because I think there are some very exciting developments happening. So specifically then to your question of. Does any of this fit into Bible prophecy? Thank you. And I think the answer is yes, as long as we're careful about what we mean. Okay, like mm. I don't want to be crazy, and I don't like to shoehorn in every newspaper event or TV event. Uh, oh, that's prophecy. That's prophecy. But but look, uh, first of all, the main thing about the Abraham Accords is that they represent dramatic dramatic answers to the prayers of millions and millions and millions of Christians hmm. who've been faithfully praying for the peace of Jerusalem as we were commanded by King David in hmm. Psalm 122, verse 6. Hmm. So the most important thing to think about this is we serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God, a God who works wonders. He loves to answer our prayers. We read in the book of James, you have not because you ask not or because you ask with impure motives. Hmm. So let me say that I believe that the Bible is clear that God will always answer prayer. Hmm. But the answer isn't always yes. And sometimes the answer is no, but sometimes the answer is wait. Hmm. And I think in the case of 25 years of praying for some more Arab countries to make peace with Israel and Israel to make peace with them, uh, the answer was wait. But mm. we didn't give up. And Christians all over the world were faithful, not just in America, but all over the world. I've traveled all over the world, met with Christians who've asked me, how can we pray? Well, let's start with what the Bible says to pray for. Pray for peace. Yes, that we certainly want to pray for spiritual peace between men and women and their relationship with God. So that's the most important element of peace. Christ came to be our peace. He is our Prince of Peace. He came to make peace between mm. us and God by forgiving us and adopting us into God's family. But God also means 
to pray for geopolitical peace. Yeah. Why? Because it's horrible to live in a country that's constantly being attacked, constantly facing missiles, constantly facing invasion, constantly mm-hmm. facing terrorism. You know, it's very painful to live that way. And God is merciful. So that's the most important thing is to see the Abraham Accords as huge, huge, I mean, like, like major answers to prayer because yeah. usually we get one Arab-Israeli peace agreement at a time and now we got four plus another Muslim country, Kosovo. Now, in terms of prophecy, I would just say this. I, you know, We'll do a program on the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 mm. and 39, because it's an important thing to unpack, and we probably need you know, multiple uh, uh, programs on that. But that prophecy is known as the War of Gog and Magog. Now, maybe people who are unfamiliar are like, well, I thought you said this was peace. Why would it be the fulfillment of a prophecy about mm-hmm. war? Because there are several prerequisites to this massive apocalyptic end times war that's coming. The Bible makes it clear in Ezekiel 36, 37, and then the beginning of 38, several things have to happen before this big end times war. Number one, Israel has to be reborn as an actual sovereign geopolitical nation state. Mm -hmm. Check. Jews have to be coming back to resettle the land from all over the world um, after centuries and centuries of exile, and that is happening. It's not over, mm-hmm. but it's happening. It's wonderful. Israel needs to be rebuilding the ancient ruins. Israel needs to be making the deserts bloom. You know, Hebrew needs to be flourishing as a as a language again after me- nearly dying. All that's happening. But what's more, Israel has to become prosperous. Mm. We see in Ezekiel thirty eight. There's a whole discussion, uh, several discussions. You know, are you the leader of this whole evil coalition that's coming? We won't get into the details right now, but are you coming to plunder mm. the people of this reborn state, Israel? Israel's very financially prosperous, and, and they're living securely in the land. Securely in the land, meaning it's a, the, the word shalom, peace, is never used in the text. Right. But Israelis are prosperous, and they're feeling secure. Mm. So what's interesting about the Abraham Accords is we've gone from two Arab-Israeli peace treaties to six. Yeah. Okay? And Israelis are feeling more secure in this region than ever before. And as I describe in the book, it's like a Middle East gold rush yeah. is opening up. Israeli business people are building deals with Emiratis and Bahrainis and Moroccans and, and vice versa. And it's really – an exciting period, and I think as COVID begins to lift, if it be- continues to lift, Lord willing, mm. you're going to see a, a massive surge of investment and tourism and trade. So, in fact, the top finance minister for the United Arab Emirates is predicting a trillion dollars wow. in trade over the next you know, 20 or 30 years. A trillion wow. dollars for little countries like ours. That's a big, big deal. That's the, the Middle East gold rush that's, a that's starting deal. into motion. So, yes, I think that we are seeing elements of the prerequisites of something terrible that's coming later. But right now, it's like the chess pieces are being rearranged on the board. And these include a series of positive things that God describes will happen before a really major and terrible event comes at some point 
down the line. Wow. Wow. That's I the mean, short version. Yeah, that is a short version. And we will do more podcasts on that because it it has such implications for, you know, the the entire discussion of where the Middle East is today and the and the work that that's being done there um, on those things. Uh, Joel, we're going to take a quick break, but when I come back, you know, something we touched on earlier was the future and the future of Christianity in the Middle East. And there's so many implications coming out of these Abraham Accords, and we want to touch on those after we get back in just a moment. Hi, this is Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund. I don't know about you, but I love to have someone to talk to after I've learned something new. If you're the same, share this podcast with a friend or family member and discuss together the many ways God is moving in the epicenter. From all of us at Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, thank you. Hey, Joel. Hey, everyone. Uh, We're back. uh, and We'd love to talk, Joel, coming out of the Abraham Accords about Christianity in the Middle East. And I think many of our listeners won't won't really understand what the nature of Christianity is in the Middle East. I think you've you've often said that if it was easy to evangelize in Israel, um it would have been done 2000 years ago. That was the first place that Christianity was born. And uh, throughout the Middle East, Christianity flourished for centuries until the rise of Islam, and then Christianity took a very different role there. But coming out of these Abraham Accords and coming out of the current context, you know, what do you think the future of Christianity is in the Middle East and, and maybe the future of faith in general in the region? Well, it's a great question, and it has multiple elements. Um, first, I would say that the future of Christianity is very bright in the Middle East, even though it's been the least fruitful area on the entire planet for the last 2,000 years. I mean, at the beginning, yes, that's where, you're, as you say, this is where Jesus uh, preached and where he died and where he rose again. And this is where the apostles initially began preaching and teaching and making disciples. And we saw tens and tens of thousands of Jewish people come to faith uh, in the book of Acts. And then, of course, the gospel began to spread uh, globally. Um, and churches, wonderful churches, were established in Egypt and, and in Iraq and Ultimately, Thomas took the gospel to India, and we really saw the gospel spreading super dramatically and uh, and fruitfully. But after those first few you know centuries, first century maybe maybe into the second, certainly by the time you get to the to the fourteenth century and then the rise of Islam. But even before that, I think Christian communities grew, um, but mostly we saw much more fruit in Europe and elsewhere. But in many ways, the gospel's coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to the Middle East, meaning Mm. Christians all over the world, from certainly the United States and the Americas, but also South Korea and Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan and and, and throughout Asia are excited to make sure that every Muslim and every Jewish person has at least heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could they believe unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless somebody tells them? And how can somebody tell them unless they're sent, which means encouraging them to go and training them and funding them and praying for them. And and so there's a real wonderful movement worldwide, both from east and west, of Christians saying we need to make sure that 
the least evangelized region of the world, the least fruitful area of the world in the modern era, uh, that everyone at least had a chance to hear, especially because there's war and revolution and terror and genocide, right? So that's more and more that that is happening, and I think that's a good thing. Now, I think that the question of Christianity recently – look, just a few years ago, we had the rise of the Islamic State – Mm-hmm. ISIS, uh, which built a caliphate about the size of um, Massachusetts, I believe. And that caliphate, that ISIS you know, country, was engaged in actual outright genocide. This was declared by Congress after careful investigation. This was declared by the Obama administration. Secretary John Kerry declared what ISIS was doing against Christians – in particular, but also against other religious minorities like Yazidis. This was outright genocide. Now, what does genocide mean? Mm -hmm. It means when a a, a state or a group is trying to liquidate, annihilate, eliminate an entire religion in an area, either by killing everybody Hmm. or by driving them out of the region or by forcing them to convert to something else. And this is what ISIS was doing, and it was accurately described as genocide. So this was in Syria. This was in Iraq. This was just a few years ago. Okay, Mm -hmm. so it seemed if you'd asked me this question a few years ago, we would have said the future of Christianity seems pretty grim. Yeah. Right? But now the caliphate has been destroyed by American and Kurdish and Arab allied military action quite a bit of which I describe in Enemies and Allies because it was a big deal mm-hmm. um, and, and very encouraging. The liberation of more than 5 million people and the end of genocide against Christians. We also have seen, as I describe in the book, and you, you and I have just talked a little bit on previous podcasts, we've seen you know churches in Egypt being rebuilt. All the ones that were damaged, destroyed, or burned down by the Muslim Brotherhood and by other radical terrorist forces during the Arab Spring, the Egyptian uprisings, all those churches have been rebuilt at government expense to honor the Christians. And President el-Sisi you know, asked me to come and bring a Christian delegation, evangelical delegation, to be part of the unveiling of the largest Christian church ever built in the history of the Middle East, which he was going to give to the Christians of Egypt on Christmas Eve. (laughs) That's quite a gift. And I was there, and it was pretty amazing. And and I described that in the book. So there are some encouraging things going on Mm -hmm. uh, after a season of, of really terrible things. But to summarize then, Jesus talks in Matthew 24 about birth pangs. Jesus says there's going to be a whole series of bad things that are going to happen as we get closer to the return of Christ. And the analogy Christ uses is the analogy of a woman in labor. And the closer you get to the moment that you want, the arrival of the person that you want to embrace and rejoice in and celebrate his or her entry into the world, as we get closer to that moment, The mom is going through tremendous pain, a contraction that's painful and and serious, and then a release, Mm. and a contraction and a release. And this keeps happening, and the contractions get longer and more painful as you get closer to delivery, to the moment you want, and the release moments get shorter. 
Mm. And this is Jesus's way of describing what's going to happen. And he gives us this list, right, in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. What type of contractions are coming? And one of those, of course, is the persecution of the church. Mm. And uh, you used to head up the organization um, Open Doors with Brother Andrew in North America, right? And Open Doors is super clear in their annual report. There is more persecution of followers of Jesus Christ today than at any other time in human history. So those birth pangs are happening. Uh, The ISIS experience was part of that, but by no means the only part of that. And yet there's one other part I'll mention, which Matthew 24, verse 14 a positive moment that Jesus says is going to happen where this gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. Hmm. So in addition to all the horrible things that are going to happen, in the middle of that, followers of Jesus Christ are going to be found faithful in making sure that everyone in the world including the Middle East, including the epicenter, will have least, at least heard that there is good news. And in doing so, then they can make their own decision. Do they want to receive Jesus as Messiah, King, Lord, hmm. or reject him? But how could they even make that decision unless they at least heard the case? So both things are going to be happening uh, simultaneously, and that's the uh, short version of the future of Christianity in this region. Yeah, it, it, it is a paradox, and the scripture is, is unapologetic about the paradox of all of this pressure, all of this pain, and all of this, uh, as you said, contraction happening around the church and around uh, the region. But at the same time, the the very pressure and the very persecution that comes upon believers causes an explosion of gospel uh, sharing uh, we've seen that through history, haven't we? I mean, when yeah. you mentioned the diaspora, you know, of the early church, you know, Rome and the Jewish authorities at the time decided to persecute the church uh, intensely. So they were scattered throughout the region, the Bible says. And, right. and we've seen it in history, too. Wherever the church is persecuted, it can be extinguished. We've seen that in places like uh, Asia Minor. The church, you know, didn't have the strength under persecution to survive, and many of those uh, cities of revelation and everything are are no longer the churches in those areas, or were not for many, many centuries. But where the church has a grounding and a strength and a rootedness, and the gospel is the source of that strength, the church can flourish under persecution. And I think that's that's a message that many of us uh, sometimes miss, that the church in fact, we'll talk in future episodes about some of the other countries where the church is flourishing under persecution in the neighbors of Israel. So, so what are? And what here's you, one quick example. I mean, just, you know, there's there's a lot in this in the Middle East. I think one of the reasons there hasn't been as much fruit in this region, in part, yes, is because um, radical Islamism has dominated many many countries in the region and has tried to stamp out Christianity. However. In the country where radical Islamism is practiced most fiercely, we're seeing a great awakening. Yeah. In the Islamic Republic of Iran, you know, you have a tyrannical, hyper anti Christian regime under the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. And yet, under this last 
40 or so years, 50 years of tyranny, anti-Christian tyranny, uh, the church has grown dramatically from only about 500 Muslim converts to Christianity in Iran, in all of Iran, in 1979, before the Islamic Revolution, before the arrival of the Ayatollah Khomeini. But today there are well over one million Muslims who've left Islam and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, our friend, uh, the, the Billy Graham of Iran, Dr. Hormoz Shariat, has described in a book that I've encouraged him for many years to write, and he finally did, and I wrote the forward to it, there's a great awakening going on in Iran. Yes. And so that tells us a regime that wants to stamp out Christianity is having the exact opposite effect. Yeah. And that is just one example uh, uh, in, in the region of the principle that you just described. And and it happened in Rome, you know. I mean, it happened in in places around the world where we thought that Christianity would never uh, take root. It happened in China under communism. You know, the church flourished. Um, so I, I I pray, and I know many of our listeners will pray for the church to flourish uh, in the Middle East. Maybe as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and uh, and the protection of our brothers and sisters, uh, we also need to pray simply that God would do His work to flourish. Uh, the church, because we see this paradox that there is going to be increasing persecution, yeah. but at the same time, we also see many, many millions uh, potentially coming to faith in that region. Amen. What a blessing that would be to see that, wouldn't it? Amen. And, and a verse that I forgot to share when we were describing what's the future of Christianity. Well, let's look at Romans chapter eleven, verse twenty-six. God says specifically, "All Israel will be saved." Amen. That's a separate show to unpack the nuances of that verse. But imagine, you know, the Bible does not say all of America will get saved or all of, you know, Germany will get saved or all of Brazil will get saved. Though Brazilians are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in, in, in millions and millions and millions, huge numbers. Yes. I have a Brazilian uh, uh, sister-in-law and boy, I just learning through her eyes and her husband's eyes, wow, what God's doing in Brazil. But my point is, Israel's the only country where God says all Ooh. Israel will be saved. Yeah. And part of that, why did God say that? Well, because it's true, but also to encourage us not to forget that even though my team, the Jewish team, have been very resistant to the claims of Jesus as Messiah over the centuries, that will not always be the case. And as we've discussed in other podcasts, more Jewish people have come to faith in Jesus Christ over the last 60, 55, 60 years than at any other time in human history. Hmm. We're now worldwide at about 1 million followers of Jesus Christ as Messiah who are Jewish, like Jewish followers of Jesus, a million. That's really quite extraordinary um, when you think of the history of the Jewish people. And I will add in a world of only 16 or 17 million Jewish people, to have a million Jewish people who believe that Jesus is Messiah is pretty dramatic in terms just of a pure percentage. Now, there will be listeners to this, viewers of this, people who track me, who get enraged, Jewish people, who get enraged you know, by what I'm saying. Uh, but I'm speaking the truth. These are the numbers, and we have, yeah. you know, we have data that back that up. And then we might want to do a, a program in the future where we bring in some of the people that did the research, 
Yeah. So we can discuss why do we say that there's a million Jewish people who believe in Jesus now? Let's let's have that conversation. But I want to say this too. Historically, yes, there are Jewish people who don't want to hear about Jesus and they don't want to hear that Jewish people are saying yes to Jesus. I get that. I understand that. I have members of my own family, uh, extended family, that don't want to hear about Jesus and aren't happy to have the conversation. I get that. Mm -hmm. But let me just put it this way for now. If you believed that the Jewish Messiah had come and had changed your life, would you tell somebody else about it so that he could change their life too? Mm. Or would you keep your mouth shut? And love directs us to at least tell people. We're not the inquisitors. We're not the crusaders. We're not going to try to force people, Jews or Muslims or anybody, to believe. But how can they believe unless they've at least heard the case? And that's, I think, important. And it's important to me personally because Jesus has changed my life and my Mm. father's life and my son's lives and all of our lives. And somebody needed to tell us about that so we could process it for ourselves. And I get it that some people get super angry about this. I totally get it. But, in fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote nearly half the New Testament, was one of those religious Jewish leaders who said, no, Jesus is not the Messiah, and I'm going to persecute any Jewish person who believes in Jesus mm-hmm. until he himself yeah. had an encounter with the risen Savior, Jesus. And that made all the difference in his life. Boy, I'll tell you, Joel, you and I have seen and talked with some of those modern-day Pauls, Saul to Pauls, who have had the experience of conversion uh, from such a, a different viewpoint. And, and it is so humbling and so powerful to realize that God is still doing that work today among, among Jewish people and among uh, Arabs and all of that. You know, and I guess I would ask you, you know, what do you think some of the top needs of our Christian brothers and sisters, whether they're from the Messianic community in Israel or the uh, Palestinian communities, uh, uh, and the, the neighboring countries, where do you see the needs falling right now? Well, there's a number of needs, Carl. Um, as I've crisscrossed, obviously throughout Israel, but also from you know, Morocco in the west to Afghanistan in the east, um, and hit most of the country, Arab countries in the region, the combination of Jewish believers and Arab believers is they certainly need prayer because the spiritual warfare mm. against them is, is pretty intense. Mm. Now, the more mature we become in our faith in Christ and the deeper we get into the scriptures, uh, the more we realize that what we see is the physical realm, but what we don't see is a spiritual realm. And there are powers and principalities, demonic forces, trying to mess with us every moment of every day, especially if we're a Jewish follower of Jesus or a follower of Jesus from a Muslim background, or that we live in a country in this region where most people are against or even hostile to what we believe. Persecution on the outside is bad, but the intensity of spiritual warfare is even worse. And it's exhausting, and it can be frightening, and it can be... Because you're dealing with an enemy you can't see, but you Mm. can feel. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so one of the things I found, of uh, especially with, let's say with, uh, I mean, certainly lay people, but but pastors and ministry leaders, both on the Jewish side and in the Arab world, dealing with intense exhaustion, nightmares, financial pressures, people inside their congregations or ministries attacking them and, and relentlessly trying to rip them to shreds. I had somebody uh, who claimed to be a Christian who, in the early days with the Joshua one, uh, slapped a $120 million lawsuit on us. <laughs> you, you, you know, you're a, a new ministry, you're just getting started. And well, I'm not talking, it wasn't a Muslim organization that did this. It wasn't a radical Orthodox Jewish organization. This was a guy who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He was wow. going after us. He was gunning for us. And throughout my my life, and certainly throughout the, the Joshua Fund ministry, I, I've had people threaten me and attack me. Yeah, sometimes it's been from unbelievers, but sometimes um, <laughs> you're like, you got to be kidding me. You yeah. know, people who are even prominent. Uh, so, like, it happens. And I think that we need to be praying and not in some sort of gauzy, oh, Lord, I just pray you bless my. Yeah, no, that's fine. But again, the more you learn about the life of followers of Jesus in this region, the more you begin to understand they need our active prayers. They need prayers for the ability to sleep. I cannot even tell you how many people I know, myself and my wife included, who are not getting good sleep because the spiritual warfare, the 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 attacks from the enemy that's again, if you if somebody doesn't understand what we're talking about, it's gonna be hard for me to describe to them. But right. But, um, you know, attacks, and again, attacks against your children, attacks against your finances, all kinds of problems. Yeah. So that's the main thing is prayer. But then, of course, um, many believers in this part of the world, especially leaders, they feel like nobody outside the region has any idea who they are or what their challenges are or how to just encourage them, stand with them, come visit them. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. The Apostle Paul, right, you know, when you think of the first missionary journey, all right, let's preach the gospel and just sort of establish churches. But in the second and third journeys, yes, he's still preaching the gospel, but a big part of what he's doing is saying, I want to go back and, and see my brothers and sisters, I want to mm. encourage them. I want to answer questions they have. I want to teach. I want to uh, train. I want to just be, you know, be with them because it's hard. It's hard to do this in, a, in cultures that are resistant and hostile. And just that, that sense of visiting and encouragement. And, of course, because of COVID, that's been harder for yeah. our colleagues to do. It's been hard. You haven't even been in the region yet, and you've been <laughs> – uh, the uh, executive director for the Josh Fund, as we record this, for you know, coming up on uh, I don't know, eighteen year months or so. Yeah, year and a half. So that's a you, you know, you just happened yep. to come in during the COVID uh, plague. <laughs> the one other area I would say, of course, is financially. That you know, most pastors here in Israel, for example, and throughout the Arab world, honestly, most are shepherding twenty, thirty, fifty. A hundred people. The mega church in Israel, maybe the largest congregation I can think of, is maybe five hundred people, six hundred people. Wow. We go to a congregation of maybe three hundred people. These are the mega churches. Yeah, right. You know, now most churches in the United States and Canada, for example, they're about a hundred people. But a lot of people go to churches of ten thousand, mm-hmm. thirty thousand. Mm-hmm. Right. Some of our dear friends who are pastors, they pastor congregations that have more followers of Jesus than the entire nation of Israel has in the whole country. So one of the challenges of that is most pastors here don't 
take a full salary or a salary at all. They have to work full time and they're pastoring. They don't have a secretary. <laughs> they don't have someone to help them with logistics and, and administrative things, uh, bookkeeping. Yeah. They don't have the finances to, you know, hire a youth pastor or this is just hard. Yeah. And they think, yeah. well, where am I going to go do this? Am I going to spend all my time outside the land of Israel or outside the Arab Muslim world trying to build relationships with pastors and Christians and foundations? And if I spend all my time trying to raise money outside, how am I shepherding the flock entrusted to my care where I'm supposed to be? That's a tension. Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there's a number of these uh, things, and that's just a few off the top of my head. Well, that's why I love the fact that God allowed you and, and Lynn to found the Joshua Fund because, you know, in a sense, uh, everything you described there is is really the focus of our of our ministry. You know, prayer, uh, uniting the body in in the Middle East, um, Jewish believers, Arab believers in prayer and praying for and mobilizing prayer here in in the United States and other countries around the world for the believers in the Middle East, you know, providing that personal touch, that encouragement, that uplifting. I love to envision, you know, the that we uphold the arms of those that are in the place of of battle and that that are that are standing in that gap for us. And you said it right, it's a spiritual battle. It's something that requires um, the encouragement of brothers and sisters around the world. And the Joshua Fund does that. It does that through our, our Preach the Word conferences and our um, uh, mill retreats and various other things where we take uh, pastors and their wives away to refresh them, to renew them, to teach the Word and to encourage them, uplift and, and embolden them, but at the same time to really seed and, and water into their lives um, love and care and concern. And, you know, financially, uh, stand alongside churches that, like you said, small congregations, sometimes very just struggling home fellowships that need the resources to reach out. And through, you know, many of our programs and things that we come alongside these congregations and do that. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Over the last 15 years since the Lord founded this ministry, uh, the Lord has enabled us as a team to invest more than $80 million yes. in strengthening the church in Israel and the Arab world. And that's amazing. In, when I was writing the book Enemies and Allies, I described the Joshua Fund because I wanted to describe, okay, all this stuff is happening. How does this affect Lynn and me? Like, how do we, What's our so what? And our so what normally isn't meeting with kings and crown princes. It's being engaged in the Joshua Fund and making a, a specific practical difference in the lives of believers here and helping them strong. But in the book, I used a number of $50 million. <laughs> we corrected um, you. <laughs> and I didn't – I'd used that number for a number of years and I didn't even think – with all the research I did, I never thought to come to you and the team and say, could you just update where are we today? And so – that's a correction I hope I can make in the paperback yeah, edition, but yeah. but it's actually $80 million, which is a total testimony yeah. to the grace of God, and yet it's just a drop in the bucket of what's needed, and as a ministry like ours gets to know more people, then you start to see more needs, and you think, yes. wow, yes. all right, Lord, they're your children. Like We can't take this burden on as like our fault that we can't fund, but we say... Would you allow us to do more? You know, and and how would we do that, Father? Yeah. Um, now he doesn't need our money, right? He, he can use loaves and fishes, but sometimes 
as Paul did on his third missionary journey, was travel and say, I'm going to preach, I'm going to encourage, I'm going to teach, but I'm also going to raise funds to bring back to Jerusalem Amen. to care for the yep. believers who it's just not possible for them to provide yeah. in a way that God can provide for bringing and the joy of Gentile believers assisting their Jewish brothers and sisters in the land, knowing this is important. Yeah. How can I make a difference? Even poor churches that, you know, these weren't rich people in, in Europe or in Asia Minor. These weren't people that were like, oh, I used to be, you know, the head of a multinational corporation, and now I follow Jesus. Here's my money. Take my Right? I mean, most people are like, I, you know, they're giving out of their poverty. Yes. But they're doing it because they say, I want to be helpful. Yes. And that's what I love. I, I, you know, the, the widow's might. That was more to Jesus. It meant more to him than somebody giving out of their wealth. She was giving out of her poverty. And while we don't believe in using sensationalist tactics or coercion or anything else, we just want to give people an opportunity. Listen, if you want to be involved in helping strengthen the local church, the challenge that we all face is not whether we necessarily want to, but how would we do that? How would we know how to help a church of 50 people. How would we know they exist? How would we give that money? How would we know that that pastor is, you know, sort of healthy spiritually? That's the Joshua Fund, you know, yes. a mutual fund of, of sorts saying, listen, we'll be your trusted resource yeah. and make sure these funds make a difference for the kingdom. And I, Amen. I don't make apologies for it. I know there are <laughs> Muslims and Jews who hate me. For what I do, and I know I run into some Christians who aren't big fans either, and I don't know why, but <laughs> it's just a weird world. But I love doing this, and I love that you're doing this. And there's nothing more uniting, except for prayer in the body of Christ, than giving to support the work around the world. I mean, I think you see that happen in the New Testament with Paul in the Corinthians, just as you mentioned, but it's also happening today. We have people who write us, who email us, who say, thank you for standing with the pastors of Israel. Thank you for standing with our brothers and sisters in the in the Arab countries and for being in a place that I can't be, but I can give, and I'm grateful. Uh, what a blessing. What a huge blessing to the body of Christ. Paul would write these epistles. It's like, I, I don't want your money. I want you. I, <laughs> I, want, I, I you want to give right. you an opportunity exactly. to invest in in the kingdom. I mean, and if you don't want to do it, fine. But I'm giving you an opportunity, and it's exciting. And uh, if the Lord is in it, great. You know, yeah. I, remember, you know, of course, of course, you remember it. I'm just reminding our, our audience. When the Lord was building the tabernacle, even in the Old Testament, it was very clear. The Lord made it clear to Moses, look, people give voluntarily. If they don't want to give, they don't have to give. Um, that's between them and the Lord. People were so excited because they thought, this is important. I want to be a part of it. Finally, God had to say, okay, okay, enough. Like, uh, it's too much. We, we actually have more resources we need. Unfortunately, I can't say that that's where we are in the Joshua Fund uh, <laughs> no. uh, because the needs in the region are, are enormous. But yeah. But it, but it's just a reminder. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. It's His game. He's He's leading this thing. We're just trying to be faithful stewards. And I'm grateful for everybody who who is a prayer warrior with us, yes. and maybe has gotten to know even what the Joshua one is because of these podcasts. And those who give financially, awesome. We just appreciate it so so much. So so much. And and Joel, before we leave, made a promise. The Abraham Accords has been such a crucial component of this conversation. 
What do you see for the future of them? And are there other countries that are thinking about joining? I think there are. And I think one of the things that's interesting about this is suddenly there are Muslim, Arab Muslim leaders and governments who are like, we want to be on friendly terms with the Jews. And we want to be on friendly terms with the Christians. That has not been the case historically, primarily, in the Arab Muslim world over the last 14 centuries. There certainly have been seasons where that was true, and but there have been seasons that were quite dark. But that's changing. That's a big deal. There are Arab leaders who are saying, you know what, I think Israel actually has the legitimate right to exist. And, the, and as a Jewish state, yeah, they're friendly to Arabs, and yes, they need to improve on various areas, uh, and they need to make peace with the Palestinians, but they have the right to exist, and, and um, we're not going to war against that anymore, either militarily or politically. That's a big deal, and one of those countries is Oman mm. and the Sultanate of Oman. We talked about the emirates before, and emir, right, is a leader, but a sultan is another Arab word for a leader. And there's a little tiny country called Oman. They've already welcomed the Israeli prime minister on a visit several years ago. Benjamin Netanyahu, when he was our prime minister, he visited there. Mm. And they still haven't made peace with Israel, but they were ahead of the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco in welcoming the Israeli prime minister. So when might they make that decision? There were 300 Iraqi prominent leaders who called for peace. They said, we want to join the Abraham Accords. Iraq should join. Now, they immediately got in trouble uh, for saying that. (laughs) Iraq's current government doesn't seem ready for that, but that took a lot of bravery for 300 prominent uh, government and uh, journalists and academics and faith leaders to say, no, it's time for us to make peace with Israel. We're seeing Lebanese Muslims say, we should be making peace with Israel. I think the main country, though, to keep an eye on, and there are others, there are others, but the main country I would say is Saudi Arabia. Mm. And again, I describe in the book the steps that they have taken. There are things that I can't say. Mm-hmm. My conversations with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, when it came to Israel and peace, those were off the record. He didn't want to speak on the record, but he did have an interesting conversation with us, not just on the first delegation, but also on the second. But I go into what we said to him on both of those trips, and I think our viewers and listeners will find that interesting. But I will say, just take three things that he has done that are all very public and visible. Number one, he said on the record to an American journalist in the magazine The Atlantic that MBS believes that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. That's a big, that's a big deal. Big deal mm-hmm. for this for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Number two, the Saudis have allowed Israeli, Emirati, Bahraini airliners, civilian airliners, and private jets to fly over Saudi territory as part of the Abraham Accords. Right. The Saudis are not yet part of the Abraham Accords, but they have not stood against it. They have not denounced it. They have not, you know push back against it, they're opening their own skies Mm -hmm. in ways that they've never done in human history, right? So that's a big deal. The third thing is, and I report this in Enemies and Allies, the Crown Prince, MBS, invited then-Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel's then 
Mossad chief, spy chief, Yossi Cohen, to meet with him on Saudi territory wow. along with then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I point this thing out in the book. I, I, it's still an off-the-record discussion, but it's no longer secret the fact that it even happened. Wow. Our uh, news sources, all Israel news and all Arab news actually was the, the, the news sites that confirmed that the, the rumors at the time in December of 2020 that this was happening at all, and I, I backed that up in the book. But my point is keep your eye mm-hmm. on Riyadh. Why? Why are they saying such positive things? Why would they have an Israeli like me? much less my wife, come and visit. What's happening? I'm not saying that these things couldn't get derailed or sidetracked. Uh, And of course, the enemies, Iran, the Muslim Brotherhood, others, they don't want these peace treaties to hold. They don't want new countries to come into the Abraham Accords. So we need to keep praying. This is not a time to say, oh, God has answered our prayers. Good, we're done. Let's move on to other things. No, 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 no. There's more. Iran is more dangerous than ever before, Mm -hmm. and it's forming an alliance with Russia and Turkey and North Korea and China. Iran is incredibly dangerous. And so are the radical Islamist terror forces, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, all the other terrorist organizations whose names start with an H. I mean, it's not good. (laughs) So there are two trend lines going on. There's the good... And then there's the evil, and yeah. and it's both happening in real time, and we need to pray. And that's why we call it the epicenter, because it is where all of these influences come together. Joel, this is fascinating stuff, and I know our listeners are going to want to run out, go to Amazon. I used to say run to your local bookstore, but no, you don't run to a bookstore anymore. Go, go anywhere uh, and get enemies and allies. It's an incredible journey through today's turbulent Middle East, but but also with that underpinning, that underlying hope that God is at work. Joel, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this uh, incredible book, and uh, it's so much fun wow. to be on these uh, podcasts with you. And I appreciate it. And let me, can I just say, can I just add one last uh, note? I didn't think about it before, but on the book tour, um, I had the great joy of meeting with the Jordanian ambassador to the United States, uh, who's a friend, and giving her a copy of the book for her and to send one back in a diplomatic pouch for His Majesty King Abdullah. I was able to sit down with the UAE ambassador, my friend Yusuf Al-Taiba, in Washington and give copies of the book to him and some to send back to his crown prince to sit with the Bahraini ambassador, my friend Sheikh Abdullah uh, in Washington. Uh, again, books for him and for the king, uh, King Hamad, a real hero. And we should talk about the Bahrainis more in the future. Sitting with the Saudi ambassador to Washington, uh, Rima bint uh, Bandar, and giving copies to her and her uh, crown prince and, and senior leadership and others, including uh, having lunch uh, with a group of the leaders that, that helped craft and broker the Abraham Accords, uh, Jared Kushner, and uh, have a chance to give him a book and chat with him and his inside team. So it's just been fascinating to see how how they are going to then all react to the story because this is – it's not going to be the only book that's ever written on this topic. I know that there are others who are For in sure. motion, but this is the first, and right now 
It's the only book that takes you inside mm. all these big changes, including the inside story of how the Abraham Accords came to pass and why, from a Christian perspective, they're so important. Yeah. Well, you're right. And I am uh, extremely grateful uh, that uh, we at the Joshua Fund have had the opportunity to kind of stand alongside uh, your work in these diplomatic uh, ways. And I also want to commend you on great pronunciation of all of those very difficult names. <laughs> that That's tough, brother. And I like the initials better than... <laughs> yeah, there you, you go. My, Excellent. My, my Excellent. dear friend. Tadaraba. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joel, and, and, and all candor, it's also been an amazing privilege to help lead the Joshua Fund uh, and doing the work that you so beautifully highlighted uh, standing alongside the believing communities of, of uh, Israel in the Middle East it's it's a privilege and a pleasure to to walk this journey with you brother and and to see Well likewise God Carl is you you're a great hire and with so much experience that you brought in and um, I'm just so grateful that you're leading that team day to day um, and uh, it's great to partner with you on all these projects Well amen and to our listeners, you know, if you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, uh, stand with us as we stand with those that are in the middle of that spiritual battle. Uh, you can visit our website at joshuafund.com. And right there, you can learn about everything that we're doing in the Middle East in the epicenter to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus and how you can participate in the healing work we're doing in this critical region. You know, if you've found this podcast valuable, we want you to get in touch with us. Uh, let us know who you are. What do you want us to talk about on this show? Um, do you have a question you want Joel to answer? Again, go to the joshuafund.com website and click on Contact Us. Feedback from you is incredibly valuable as we continue to deliver and develop this podcast. And as always, you can check out our show notes uh, for anything you heard on the podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter. If you're tired of parenting advice and news headlines that are more confusing than assembling IKEA furniture, we've got just the podcast for you. My dear friend Abby and I are here to help you navigate the parenting roller coaster. Should your kids be on social media? What should you tell a friend facing an unplanned pregnancy? These are just some of the many questions we tackle on our podcast. Subscribe to The Real Deal of Parenting wherever you find your podcast.